We are starting a brand new uh, sermon series, and uh, I want to give you a little update on what that is. It's called Family Vacation. So first of all, when you hear Family Vacation, once you go through all the memories of your family vacation, what's one word, now remember, we're in church, what's one word that comes to mind when you hear Family Vacation? One word. Road trip, trip, two words, but I love the two words. Okay. Okay, what's another one comes to mind? Fun, togetherness. What? Hiking. And you say nauseousness or, okay. Uh, if you're like us, uh, especially during the Christmas season, uh, the kids will just start reflecting on uh, vacation memories. And some of them are just hilarious. Sometimes we try to forget some of those. Uh, those all night, remember those all nighters and dad rolling the window down and trying to get this, all the craziness that goes into it. And so as we go into this sermon series, one of the things we want to look at is if you were to vacation to some of these key Bible places, what would that be like? And what are the spiritual lessons we can learn from some of these biblical destinations that are really critical throughout Scripture? And so we're going to pull from that some of these biblical de- uh, destinations and hopefully to lay out some applications for all of us. And before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you, we bow down, we praise you for the precious worship that we've just experienced And Lord, we praise you for this opportunity that we have every Sunday uh, to reach out to those that are hurting, but more importantly, to reach up to you who gives us all life. Thank you for another day of life. Thank you for this day to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. There's a city that we're going to look at. um, Really, it's more the big city. If you've ever taken big big city vacations, and you know throughout the scriptures, there's some big cities, Jerusalem and a Corneth and Ephesus, and there's a big city that we have in the States, and it's the city of Las Vegas. And there's a tagline from Las Vegas. Anybody know what that tagline is? Not just Sin City, it's what's done in Vegas, what? Stays in, well, we, you're all sinners. So good. What's done in Vegas stays in Vegas. And at the foundation of that is shame. And one of the ways that helps all of us deal with shame in our lives is to come into one another's company and realize that we all are in a me-too life. In other words, all of us have things in life, things that we've made mistakes, troubles that we've had, and there's these me-too moments that are critical. So just thinking about me-too, I'm going to read a statement, and as I read a statement, if you agree with that, just say me-too. So let's practice saying me-too. On the count of three. One, two, three. Me-too. So don't feel ashamed of any of these. Okay. Uh, I really need a day between Sunday, or excuse me, I really need a day between Saturday and Sunday. Me too. Okay, nobody's exhausted. Okay, good. I have too much month at the end of my money. Me too. Good. Uh, I look at my driver's license and I simply ask, why? Me too. Good, good. The other day, I, I don't know if this happened, the other day I got on the scale and it said one person at a time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Ronnie, I get no respect. Yeah, me too. We've had those bad days. Now, parents, these are some me too statements. Uh, Claudia came up with these, and I love these. And I just want you to listen and see if you've uttered some of these ridiculous statements uh, to your kids. Don't lick my arm. (laughs) You ever had that? Get that toilet seat off your head. Yeah. It's when they're teenagers. That's embarrassing. Okay. Um, I'm not talking to you until you wear underwear. Remember those days? Good times. Did you put honey on your brother's head? Yeah, 
All of us, if we were to record those statements, we'd realize as parents, as believers, as the non-believers, that we are in the company of one another, and we all have experienced things that are me too moments. You think, and I've thought the same thing when I'm going through hard times, that nobody knows what I'm going through, but we all go through the same things. And here's one thing we all experience. We don't like to talk about it, is shame. You see, there's that tagline in Vegas that what's done in Vegas stays in Vegas, but here's the truth. It doesn't stay in Vegas. It doesn't stay there. And shame comes and goes with us all along the way. That's why I love Romans chapter 7. In verse 17, Paul says this, As it is, no longer, I myself would do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not good. But what I want to do, I do not do. It's the evil that I do. That's the struggle that we all battle. The good things that we know we should do, why is it we go in our lives, I can't get that done? And the things that we shouldn't do are the very things that we do. And Paul says, this is the battle that you face every day. And the consequence of that battle is this underlying emotion, shame. That's why I've asked Claudia to teach with me this morning. Uh, for years, <clears throat> Claudia and I uh, did a team teaching at a group at the Cloverleaf Restaurant on West Third. And uh, I have so many priceless memories from uh, working with that group at the Cloverleaf. And Claudia and I, every week as we would co-teach, uh, we had three guiding uh, principles at the Cloverleaf. Everyone is welcome. Every view, every opinion is to be respected and that we will bless others. And that's what we did every week, is we would welcome everybody. If you had a question, there was no question that was too ridiculous. And we eventually were going to find ways to bless, not just worry and focus on ourselves, but bless the community in front of us. And those are some of the most priceless memories uh, that I've had here at Sherwood Oaks, are those times at the Cloverleaf. And there's one thing, Claudia and I, as we shared those times together and shared ministry together, if there was one thing that we've dealt with countless times with men and women and young people, it is how to handle shame. Christians don't like to talk about shame, but it's devastating. And so that's what we want to get into today. And I've asked Claudia to start off and to share with you the basics of what is shame. Well, I was just hoping I could get up here without falling off of the stool. So, good morning. Are any of you like me and have this whispers in your mind all the time, sort of like a chatterbox of thoughts and feelings going over and over and over all the time? Um, sort of rolling around in your head like a coffee can full of marbles. If you ever have that kind of thoughts, will you say me too? Oh, good, because I don't want to be the only one. Because even standing before you now, I have to admit, somebody just told me this morning I was talking to, and they said, oh, Claudia, I'm glad to see you. You always have it all together. And I thought I might as well tell you right now what's rolling around in my head like marbles in a coffee can. First thing is I spilled coffee on myself on my way here. I'm such a doofus with those lids at the gas station. I didn't get it on right. I dumped it all over me. And so now I'm sure you're all staring at this stain I have on my shirt. I'm thinking about that. 
I'm thinking about that when I grew up in my church, a lot of women, this is how old I am, so now I'm thinking about how old I am. But when I, the church I grew up in, most of the women there wore white gloves to church. Anybody here dress up to go to church on Sunday mornings when you were little? Me too? Oh, good. Well, I did, and we sat in the front row. I wasn't allowed to wear pants. And so this morning, I have jeans on, and I feel like my dad would be rolling over in his grave right now. And also, just to be honest, at the church I grew up in, women didn't speak on Sunday mornings. They led the rhythm band or maybe played the piano, but they didn't speak. So I'm a little nervous being up here. And all those thoughts are rolling around in my head like a coffee can of marbles. And um, those whispers those whispers of shame, that feeling of I'm not good enough, I'm maybe not worthy of love and belonging, shame, it invades our thoughts and our feelings. To be human is to experience shame. We all experience it. From slight embarrassment to deep humiliation, it whispers to us, and it whispers in our past. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't gone there. Me too. And it whispers in our present, like just now. Should I even be talking right now? A stain on my shirt. Our present. And I had a woman tell me this morning, my child has watched another show on TV and played another video game, the present. And it, in big ways too, we start blaming and judging and pointing fingers at each other because we feel a little better. And shame can grow so big in the present it can cause wars and cultural divide and racial divisions. My kids are a mess. My house is a mess. And it even whispers in our future. I'll never get out of this financial stress I'm in right now. I'll never get married. I'll never have a good marriage. You know, I may get cancer. My parents may get cancer. I'm worried about my health. Shame is getting a tidal wave of attention right now. Dr. Brene Brown is a shame researcher. She had over 10 million views of her TED Talk when she said this about shame. Shame is lethal. We all have it. No one wants to talk about it. It is the swampland of the soul, and we're all swimming in it. Shame throws us into a swamp that is neurobiological. Of our 40 billion brain cells going on right now, each one of them doing little synapses that if we could hear it, it would sound like a symphony. Each one of them has an important part to pay. And Dr. Curtis Thompson, by the way, these three books I'll be talking from today or thinking about, the Donald Miller, Scary Close, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, and Kurt Thompson, he's a Christian who wrote The Soul of Shame. These three books, any of you want to borrow, I have with me today if you're interested in hearing more about it. But Kurt Thompson is also a psychiatrist, and he says shame even affects the energy flow of our brain. It breaks up those little synapses as they're creating energy and growing. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt can be adaptive and helpful. Guilt is holding up something we did or failed to do against our personal values. 
But shame, shame whispers, you are bad. When guilt whispers, oh, I did something bad and I'm sorry for it. Shame whispers, you're just bad. And shame needs three things to grow. It needs silence. We don't want to talk about it. It needs secrecy. We want to hide it. And it causes a lot of judgment. So today, John and I prayed about this. We prayed that as we bring shame out of hiding and into the light, we can all get out of the swamp that we're swimming in and leave here different than we came in, splashing out something alive and living and fresh that comes from Jesus Christ. Oh, Jeff, I don't know where you are right now, but that worship time just blessed my heart because Jesus paid it all. And because of that, we can get right out of that swamp and we can just spill out living water into this shame-infested world everywhere we go. So that's what we hope we all leave here with this morning. Otherwise, what's the use? If we leave here just the same we came in, what's the use? So that's what we're hoping. So we want to take a quick look at how shame develops to kind of help us see where it comes from and how we get it. So when you came in, you should have found um, a card on your seat with this shame wheel. And this shame wheel, um, we, we put it together from looking at all three of these authors I just uh, talked to you about. And we want to look at, at how shame begins. And if you look in the center of this wheel, if you don't happen to have a card, it's on the screen behind me too. You'll see this little red heart. Because when we're born, we have what all these authors refer to as our true self, our pure heart. And we are created with this pure, beautiful, true self to receive love and give love. I just love that Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good. And that word workmanship cre translates masterpiece. In my mind, it's like God has this great big refrigerator in heaven and all of our pictures are on it. We were created to receive this amazing love from the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who is and who was and who is to come, created us because he loves us. John tells us that God is love and God is good. And he breathed life into us. He breathed this miracle of life and love. Every breath we take is a miracle of love. I think I've already received over half a million breaths. And Jesus said, as we breathe it in, we breathe in love, we breathe in grace, we should be able to breathe it out. Isaiah reminds us that God loves us so much, he knows all of our names. Psalms tells us that not only does he know all, all of our names, he's engraved them or tattooed them on his hand. He loves us and cared for us, and we have that kind of love. So Jesus says, what do we do with that kind of love? We receive it. We keep our hearts clean and true and open so we can receive that love. The reason is so we can give it. God is a giver. For God so loved the world, he gave. When we love, we give. That's what we're created to do. What happened is the enemy knows this. The enemy who John 10.10 10 tells us, the enemy came to rob destroy and steal your true heart and my true heart and separate us from the God who created us. And it all started back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. 
any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to Eve, remember this moment when the Satan whispered to Eve, did God really tell you you must not eat from any tree? And in that moment, the question was placed in Eve's mind, the same question that you have and I have and Adam have, which is why the worship meant so much to me this morning, Jeff. The question is, can you really trust God? And over and over and over, the enemy whispers, you can't trust God. He whispered it to Eve. Adam was standing right there. Ken always teases me when I say that. He says I'm the only person that could make Eve taking the apple Adam's fault. <laughs> but read carefully. He was standing right there, and he didn't say, don't take it, babe. <laughs> and it's contagious. Adam was shamed, too. So what did they do? They allowed shame to grow. The three things that causes shame to go. They hid. They were quiet. They disconnected from God and each other. They covered themselves. And Satan, I think, smiled at that point. And the thing about it is, Satan is not stopping. Revelation 12.10 reminds us that he has been unleashed on earth. And 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he is whispering to you and to me over and over and over again, you cannot trust God. God is not good. God is not love. Revelation 12.10 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. For the accuser of our brother, who accuses them before our God, day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Praise God, his time is short. Me too? <sighs> well, let's look back at the shame wheel again to see what happens to our true heart as that whisper of shame gets louder and louder in our one and only lives. Our true heart begins to develop a shame self. And it causes us to be afraid, to blame one another, to mistrust each other, to disconnect from God and the people we love so much. As we get an unrealistic, distorted, I can't say that word, distorted, I'm ashamed that I can't say distorted, there it is, distorted picture of who we are, how we should be, and who we should be from the world around us. Think about it a minute. It starts with church and parents, and they don't mean to. Shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. You hear it from the very beginning, and then you get it at school. We put them in reading groups, and we have an A reading group, and a B reading group, and a C reading group, and the shame on you group. And we think the kids don't know it. It's shame on you. We get it at parents and schools and magazines, even as we're checking out of the grocery, the magazines that tell us we're not pretty enough or thin enough or rich enough right as we go out the door. I read that the number of advertisements that hit our minds and our brain a day and now, if you add Facebook to that, it's thousands of messages we're getting um, by, from technology every single day of our lives, whispers over and over. And it causes shame and it grows 
and we become filled with shame. You know, we begin to develop a false sense of who we are. We want to cover up, just like Adam and Eve did. We want to cover it up and cover it up. It reminds me of a time when my family, uh, since John's talking about family vacations, um, my extended family ranges in like the 20s when we all get together. And um, <laughs> we're crazy. And we were taking a family vacation in Florida. My brother, you may know Jimmy, Jimmy Kane. He's the uh, minister at South Union, good friend of John's too. Well, he got everybody snorkels. And the goal of the day was teach us, to teach us all how to snorkel. And so my brother gave us this quick lesson, and the five- and six-year-old just picked it right up. The whole family was snorkeling in the water plane. I could not get it. I don't know if there's a picture. I, I brought this picture of a snorkel somewhere on there, but that thing, that snorkel, it's still, if I see that, it makes me anxious. I could not even figure out how to get it on. Ken finally showed me how to put the stupid thing on. I could never get it to work. And everybody was doing it, the whole family. Even the little babies were snorkeling. I couldn't do it. So I decided to pretend. And what I would do is put the thing on, take a deep breath, paddle around in the water, and then get up and say, wow. <laughs> I did that all afternoon until I almost hyperventilated. And, you know, I was thinking about that, and I think I do that in my life now. Whenever I feel shame, I still pretend everything's okay. Do you ever do that? Me too? Oh, good, I don't want to be all by myself in this. Sometimes I, even on Sunday morning when I come to church, if I have, I'm worried about my kids or I'm worried about my mom. My mom was just diagnosed from emphysema. I'm worried about that. Or I have things pressing on my heart. And somebody says, how are you, Claudia? Oh, I'm fine. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Have you ever had those mornings where you argue all the way to church and then you come into church and you smile and pretend you're okay. Me too. <laughs> oh, good. I don't want to be the only one that does that too. We put on this false self. We do that because we begin to feel from all this shame that love is conditional, that it's depending on how we perform. So we begin to wear masks. We begin to hide. We begin to, you know how animals, when they get scared or they get um, hurt, they make themselves bigger? You know, what a bear does or a dog when they're injured? People do the same thing. When we're full of shamed or wounded or hurt, have you looked at Facebook? We make ourselves bigger than we are and better than we are. Have you ever, please tell me I'm not the only one again, have you ever taken a selfie and then looked at it and deleted it? Anybody? Me too? <laughs> I do that all the time because I usually feel like I look fat. We make ourselves look bigger. We, it can lead to addiction. We'll start drinking because we feel better for a little bit. We start taking prescription medication because it dulls the pain. We can get angry. We can hide. We can pretend. We can mask. Because shame can grow and um, put us in that swamp, and we can feel like we're drowning in it. So um, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to get out of the swamp? Well, not to put any pressure on you, John, but John's job now is to show us how to get out of that swamp and what to do with all this shame. So here he is, all the way from Bloomington, John Robertson. <laughs> Claudia, a huge hand. For... Um, 
It's funny, she mentioned the selfie. Marie and I, uh, we just got back, we traveled three national parks, and, and uh, so we wanted to you know, take those like a romantic selfie, like with the big waterfalls. We did that about three times, and every, exactly, we looked down like, nah, it's not working. You know, and then you, know, you try, and, and we never did get that thing down. So you get the big selfie sticks, I guess it's, uh, we live in a selfie culture. I love the phrase that Claudia used when she talked about guilt, and that is the phrase swamp. Uh, years ago, I remember George W. Bush had just finished up his presidency. He'd wrote a, a memoir called Decisions, and Oprah Winfrey was interviewing him about this book, and she said, you know, with all of your political experience, uh, vast years in the public eye, do you see yourself moving forward and doing something politically again? And he just laughed and said, are you kidding me? Do you think I'd want to go back to that swamp one more time? That's what guilt is. Guilt always pulls you back into a world that you don't want to be in. And there's a swamp that you're trying to pull out of, and Satan is doing everything he can to pull you back in. So how do you get out of that swamp? Well, there's three key ways. Empathy, being a part of a Me Too community, and a clean heart. When we talk about empathy, what do we mean? That isn't just sympathy. Uh, there's an incredible multi-million dollar industry called greeting cards that rely on sympathy. Empathy is where you actually ache for someone else. Part of the uh, strategy that God puts in our lives is when we are always focusing on ourselves, we begin to feel shame at such a deep level. But when we experience the pain of others, it starts to pull that shame out of our lives because we begin to hurt for other people. Second thing is belonging to a Me Too community. That's what church is all about. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what church is supposed to be, is that we get into smaller communities. That's why you're going to hear more and more about life groups. Uh, we're actually going to bring life groups to the west side as far as a specific day where group link is just to get you connected into smaller groups, because all of us need to be in smaller community groups that are me too community groups. You need to be with other people where you can share that whatever you're going through, whatever shame you're feeling, others have been there. But this is critical. I share this all the time when I'm working with small groups of men, and that is this is what you need to be looking for. Always seek wise counsel. Even within those groups, listen for wise biblical counsel and strive for confidentiality. I always say, let's say you're in a group of five or six, you're praying that there's one or two of those individuals that you could bear your soul to, because you can't bear your soul. Let, let's say today I just really decided I'm going to bear my soul. Know what happened? I wouldn't have a job. You know, that's the truth. But here's the reality. We need people in our lives, those two, three people that you can talk to, confidentiality, that you can share your deepest hurts, and to get that's what the scripture means by confess one to another. And then strive to be a good listener. I love that video clip because isn't that true? That we strive always to be talking, but sometimes we just need to listen. And when we begin to listen, we'll pick up when somebody is experiencing shame. And then ultimately, that we go to God because only God can give us a pure, clean heart. Would you read this scripture with me? Psalms 51.10. If you'll go to your, this scripture right now, open up your Bibles. Psalms 51.10. Most of you know this from heart anyway. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Create in me a pure heart. David wrote that at the darkest moment of his life. He said, God, of all the things that I desire, will you give me a clean heart? Only God can give us that heart. We can confess our shame to others, and that is critical. But when we bring it to God, here's what God does. He cleans up our heart and gives us a new start and a new way to live. When I was a kid, and I want to close with this, I still remember one of the things that I love most about winter, and I, I love very few things about winter, and it's getting fewer and fewer every year. I love a huge snowstorm. I still do. I love it when everything gets shut down. And I always remember my mom, we went through this ritual, every big snowstorm. Uh, believe it or not, I was a very active kid. I know you probably have that, hard to imagine that, but before, as soon as I heard the news that school was out, man, I was thrown on the gear and I was ready to hit the door. My mom would always have her cup of coffee and she'd say the same thing every time. Okay, when you walk out of this door, you run through the neighbor's yard. Don't mess the yard up. She'd be having her coffee. You mess their yard up, don't mess our yard up. Because for her, that was worship. Not me leaving, but the worship was this beautiful blanket of snow. And she would just love to sit there and just look at it. But you know the worst thing about snowstorms, especially in the Midwest? It's when it starts really melting, and then it gets that ice and salt and that grime. That's shame. That's what shame feels like. It's like this beautiful snow, and all of a sudden the ice comes in and the, the salt, and, the, and it gets just ugly. But what God wants us to realize is with our hearts, he says, imagine this perfect snowstorm. What do you always think of when you see that beautiful snow? You think of the purity. And what God does for us with our hearts is he's like, look out the window and remember, remember that snowstorm, and that's what he wants to do with every heart that's here today. Here's what I know. Some of you walked in here this morning and you're carrying so much blame, you're carrying shame and hurt, and honestly, this is one of the hardest places to be, this church. I don't know why, but it is. So our prayer this morning as we laid this out is that you give that to God. You give that blame and that shame and that hurt to God. And let God take that from you. He wants you to have a new heart. He strives with everything in his power through his son to give us a clean heart. So I want to pray for all of us this morning. First of all, if you're experiencing hurt or shame, that God will reach out and pull you tight. And for some of us, just to be listeners for those that are hurting. This week, I guarantee, if you pray that prayer, God, help me to be a good listener. God will put somebody in your life that is hurting, I guarantee it, this week. Let me pray for all of you. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we surrender to you. And Lord, I have no doubt that there are those here this morning that when they heard the word shame, they hung their heads because they're hurting. So Lord, give them comfort. Give them strength. Thank you for loving us so much that when we confess to you, you're always there. You always Listen, and you give us a clean heart, a pure heart, and a new start. Like an amazing snow, Lord, you bring this blanket of cleanliness and purity into our lives. Thank you for loving us that much. And it's in Jesus' most precious holy name that I pray. Amen.